Hey everybody, this is Brett. And I'm Christian. And you're listening to the Gilded Films Podcast. And welcome to the 64th Academy Awards 1991. Welcome, everybody. The year is 1991. H.W. Bush is president, and William Jefferson Clinton may or may not have inhaled. <laughs> the movies of the day. We have people eating Chianti with fava beans. We have animated Stockholm Syndrome. We have women falling off cliffs. My God, what a crazy little year for the Oscars. But nevertheless, one of the more interesting Oscars... And here, as always, is myself, Christian. Hello. And my good co-host, Hello, Brett. Hello. That was a lovely description of some of the movies we're going to talk about. I love it. But yes, welcome back. Uh, as you may have noticed, we are back to our traditional format today, our return of which picture was best. It's been a while since we've done this. We've had the best of the decade and top 10 lists and Oscar predictions. We are back to talk about the year 1991. A really good year, and of course, we will see why. Christian, would you like to introduce our special guest today? I would. This is Toby. Hello, Toby. Hello. Uh, so many of you, if you listen, might recall that Toby helped do our Christmas episode. He's a good friend to the podcast, good friend to us, very special friend to Christian. And we're happy that he's joining us. And he's joining us specifically because a couple of these movies that we'll be talking about land within his top, you would say, what, 10 of all time? Yeah, top five. Top, wow. Okay. Wow. Yes. Top <laughs> five. All right. So, yeah, there you go. So very important movies to him. So thank you for joining us today. Oh, yeah, no problem. All right. That's very nice. I'm really excited to see what those are. We're going to cover all the Best Picture nominees like normal. And then, we'll, of course, we'll cover some films from 1991 that didn't quite get the Best Picture love. But first, the Oscars of 1991, the 64th Academy Awards. Just a really qu quick rundown. Best Picture that went that year went to The Silence of the Lambs. Best Director to Jonathan Demme for the same film. Best Actress to Jodie Foster for the same film. Best Actor to Anthony Hopkins for the same film. Best Supporting Actress to Mercedes Rule for The Fisher King. Uh, and Best Supporting Actor to Jack Palance for City Slickers. So we had the most wins going to Silence of the Lambs with five, uh, which was the big five. Those four that I mentioned as well as Best Adapted Screenplay. Um, the third and final for now, big five Oscar winner. Second we've covered. We also covered Once Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And we'll eventually get to the third. Most wins or most nominations went to Bugsy with 10. I don't know how, but we'll get into that. Yeah. Christian, you also had some fun facts about this year. Any you want to highlight in particular? Yes. Okay. Transition to me. Um, yes. So Beauty and the Beast became the first animated film nominated for Best Picture. We'll sort of discuss how that happened because it's a very interesting story. John Singleton, uh, who just passed away last year, became the first African-American filmmaker nominated for Best Director and the youngest 
we will talk about uh, that film that he made. Diane Ladd and Laura Dern. Laura Dern, who just won her Oscar. They were the first mother and daughter team nominated in the same year for the same film. Billy Crystal, once again, returns as host for his third consecutive year. Something that I watched today that I found funny, uh, comedy director slash legend Hal Roach, who did the R Gang slash Little Rascals and uh, a couple other comedy bits like the Harold Lloyd and Laurel and Hardy. Billy Crystal pointed him out at the Oscars that year, and he literally stood up and started speaking and thanking people without a microphone, and nobody could hear him. And thankfully, Billy Crystal quipped back with, I think that's appropriate because Mr. Roach started in silent films. <laughs> okay. Um, there were 44.44 million viewers, which is like, <laughs> that's a lot for these that's days. That's good. And yeah. I also found out this interesting fact that a lot of um, people actually protested this Oscars because of the portrayal of queer characters in a lot of the films. JFK, The Silence of the Lambs being the highlight, and also Basic Instinct, which came out earlier in 1992 when this was broadcast. Mm -hmm. But there were portrayals of that and how they were more of a negative response to that and less of a positive view of it. So, yeah. Interesting stuff there. Very much so. So, yeah, very interesting year. Billy Crystal, great host, in my opinion. Um, his opening monologue, Christian, you watched that today. I watched it a while back. Really good, worth checking out. Um, something that we kind of miss when we don't have a host anymore. I mean, I like the idea, but we don't get any of that anymore, which is kind of sad. I honestly would prefer Billy Crystal every year because if we get like a song medley of all the nominated films, I'd be okay with that. Yes, totally. Okay, so diving in, we got five Best Picture nominees. They are Beauty and the Beast, Bugsy, JFK, The Prince of Tides, and of course our winner, The Silence of the Lambs. So let's dive right in. Our first film, the first animated film ever nominated for Best Picture is Disney's Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> Very nice. Um, so Beauty and the Beast, actually... Um, Toby, if you'd like to, I don't want to put you on the spot because we didn't really discuss this beforehand, but I know this is a really big movie for you. So I wanted to see if you wanted to go ahead and like describe it, give a little bit of the plot and say what what this movie means to you and so on. Yeah. So like Beauty and the Beast is the story of uh, a beauty named Belle who lives in a small French town with her father. Um, she feels out of place sort of because no one really sees her. One day, her father gets captured by a beast who's doomed to be a beast because of a curse. And uh, he's doomed to be the beast until he finds true love and learns to accept uh, true love, I guess. Um, but then uh, one day, Belle uh, kind of replaces her father as the beast's captive. And that's kind of where the story takes place as uh, the beast kind of learns to love Belle and uh, the Belle kind of learns to love him back. I mean, I've just, I've always watched this movie. Like I've literally watched this movie longer than I can remember. Like, I don't even remember the first time I saw it. So. Wow. Yeah. I used to watch it uh, on the VHS at my grandparents' house, which was cool. Nice. Yeah. Christian, what about you? Uh, what's your experience with this movie and how do you feel about it? Um, love this movie. Excuse me, love this 
film. <laughs> uh, one of the earliest, like Toby, I guess, one of the earliest like memories of watching it on VHS, because we had the old old VHS that came out in like, I'm assuming 92 or 93. And then we have the special edition version of this film, which I prefer. Might talk about that a little bit. But no, it is to me, and I think I wrote this in one of my reviews, like one of the most mature looking and feeling Disney movies ever. And one that Walt Disney, rest his soul, would be goddamn proud of. Oh yeah, absolutely. Definitely. Yeah, my my experience with this film is not um, as frequent as the two of you. I think I saw it like once growing up. Is one of those few VHSs, DVD VHSs that we didn't have for some reason. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, I I you know I can't really recall the first time I saw it. I knew I was familiar with it, but yeah, this time I absolutely loved it. Um, easy five star animated movie for me. You better. Uh, yeah, no. Well, it's yeah. like you said, it's it's mature. You know, I even, like, I read Roger Ebert's review today, and he's like, it is a reminder, you know, at the time of movies that are good for kids, but that adults can enjoy as well. And a reminder that, you know, this is, you know, animated films can be high art that can be enjoyed by families, too, um, in addition to the other typical films that we have nominated for Oscars and whatnot. But, yeah, I think the visuals are pretty stunning. Um, the scenery in this movie, especially in the castle, is like some of the best ever. Uh, the ballroom scene. Yes. Yeah, the um the whole like stained glass windows at the beginning is just like and like the whole like when it first starts and you get the forest and stuff and it just it's just like yeah that's like some of the best animation I think. I love that part. Yeah, I agree. And I think like it's it it's very much fits in that kind of '90s Disney Renaissance but also feels kind of like classic back in the day Disney yeah. too, like 40s, right. 50 Disney. Like uh, I said, this is a movie that Walt would definitely approve of. Yeah, definitely. Because there was like, I, cause I looked into it and there was so much hesitation only because he saw the French film from the thirties, thirties or forties um, by, Oh my gosh. Somebody throw out a director. Uh, I'm pretty sure Jean, Jean Cocteau. Mm, yes. Okay. Yeah. But anyway, he was so intimidated by how perfect and magical that film was, which is why they never made it in his lifetime. So, And then I have written down that, and this might just be my own bias, but thank you to The Little Mermaid for being such a success that it paved the way for this Disney renaissance, that we could finally get this story in such a way that became like a perfect love story slash Broadway show that everybody could enjoy. Yeah, totally. And how successful? Because Toby, you brought up to me like the movie poster thing. Yeah, because I you know, see it. There's like the the more like mature movie poster, and then there's like the more kids movie poster. That's a good point. I hadn't thought about that, but like, yeah, that's a really good point. But no, I mean, Little Mermaid did kind of bring back Disney, and you know, to making these really really great films. And yeah, it did pave the way for Beauty and the Beast to be made, um, which. Drag me to something I really want to have a conversation about because this is the first film to be nominated as an animated feature for Best Picture and is still the only film to be nominated in a year of less than 10 nominees. Um, animated film, that is. And so, Christian, I know you looked a little bit into the campaign and 
um toby i'm sure you have some thoughts on this too but why beauty and the beast like why is this the animated film that stands the test of time as the one to be nominated in year five well i mean like you said i looked it up so what producers did is sort of what people do now with oscar campaigning they had q a screenings they sold it or they showed it to the directors guild they had academy screenings like they pushed this hard and like i keep saying it is a film that feels so mature enough that it almost appeals more to adults than it does to kids. And I feel like an Academy of Voter. And I'm thinking of this is a time when we still have people of classic Hollywood. You know, this is the 90s. A lot of classic Hollywood actors and actresses are still alive where they can say, look at this animated movie. This is like, this isn't something for my grandbabies. This is so good. Like, I relate to this movie. This is something that if this is live action, I would want to be in this. Yeah, oh. right. And then, like with the campaigning, like they sort of campaigned it like it was just a movie, and it so happened to be animated. Like you know, they screened it for like what the Directors Guild stuff like that, which helps a lot because no- normally they probably wouldn't have looked at it then that way, like the directors or whatever. Yeah, that's that's really smart on their ends. Yeah. Because so I think, like, if they had gone with the, with the approach of this could be the first animated film to be nominated for Best Picture, that might actually turn some voters off. And they might be in the mode that, well, I don't want to nominate this just because it's animated and it would be cool. But treating it like it is just a film that happens to be animated, I really also, smart on their end. I also don't know how much heft it held back in the 90s, but it won at the Golden Globes, the musical or comedy picture. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that's I mean I don't know if it's the same as it is today where that holds a lot or what the future will hold for a movie but I mean that's something big yeah for sure yeah um, obviously a lot of great songs in this movie um, the soundtrack pretty iconic now um, the honestly laps it's so good my favorite I, it's so cliche but the title song is just so good with Angela Lansbury with her vocals and it's almost kind of haunting in a way when she sings it y'all know um, the, you all know the story with her in that song i do of course do, yeah toby does do you know brett i don't know okay so there's two stories where the first story is that they sent her howard ashman and alan Menken sent her the her the song to sing and she was like i can't really sing this i don't think it's for my register they accidentally sent her the credits uh, version of it which is like Celine Dion mm. so could you imagine Angela Henry like you know tail as old as time yeah and the second of course is she sang this in one go round oh so wow supposedly what you hear on the screen is her the one and only time she had done this because she got it perfect because that is the power of Angela Lansbury yeah very nice uh, but aside from Beauty and the Beast, the title song, favorite song, what is it? What's the best one? Toby, go. Um, I have to go with something there. I knew it. I don't know. That scene, yeah, that's my favorite scene too, so. Yeah, Christian? Um, so mine is Be Our Guest. Mm. However, <laughs> the special edition of this movie has the song Human Again which is from the POV of all the animate objects, and that song bangs very well. Yes, it's a nice connection, little connecting piece in the movie, I think. Very nice. 
Yeah, I gotta go with Toby here. Something there. It's just one that can get stuck in my head, and it'll be there all day, and that's not a bad thing. Uh, but really, they're all so good. Um, kind of jumping into, yeah, go ahead. Oh no, I was just gonna say the score to this is also Alan Minkin's score is amazing in this. Very good. Oscar-winning score. To um, I think it's called the Walt Disney Legacy Collection, Beauty and the Beast. It's been it's their new like line of music that's remastered and a lot of bonus material. But you can hear the entire score of this, start to finish. It's on Spotify. It's just out of this world. Yeah, so good. And Alan Menken did win an Oscar for the score. Um, it also won Best Original Song for Beauty and the Beast. Alan Menken and Howard Ashman, who wrote the lyrics, um, who sadly died of complications with AIDS earlier in 1991. So Christian, you mentioned that his partner was there to accept the award on his behalf, which is kind of cool. It's kind of, I don't it's like this time feels still like we're in the 80s and people ignore the AIDS crisis. Mm-hmm. But now it's such a thing that you're allowing a partner of somebody to come up on stage, which, I mean, still in the 90s is like, I wonder if people still thought that was taboo and stuff. Yeah, I kind of wondered that, too. Uh, But obviously it was nominated for Best Picture. It also got nominations for Best Sound, as well as two more original song nominations for Belle and Be Our Guest. And so kind of surprised it didn't get a screenplay nomination. Would have been very well deserved, obviously. But still, um, it should have got art direction nomination as well. Totally. Because animated films can get that. Right. And, you know, the other thing is that, you know, this year we were still a full decade away from getting the best animated feature film category. And so unlike with Up and Toy Story 3, which were also nominated for Best Picture, they pretty much had guaranteed wins with Best Animated Feature Film. Beauty and the Beast didn't quite have that luxury, but still walked away with two Oscars, which is pretty cool. And one remake later. Oh, my. (laughs) Which we don't talk about. Christian had to bring it up. (laughs) It's terrible. Um, But yeah, Beauty and the Beast, it's great. Definitely one of the coolest Best Picture nominees ever. Um, being an animated feature film and being totally deserving of that. Um, so it's kind of cool. It's the first one we get to talk about. Should I read some of its AFI thing? Go for it. All right. So the American Film Institute has awarded Beauty and the Beast the number 34 best passion film. So that's romance. The number 62 best song for Beauty and the Beast, a title track. It is the number 22 of the greatest musicals and number seven best animated film of their 10 top 10. And Roger Ebert also, bless his soul, number three of his favorite films of 91. Which is awesome. Go through Roger Ebert. Number seven animated film is quite a bit lower than I expected it to be. Still really good, obviously, but. Yeah. But yeah. Any further thoughts on Beauty and the Beast before we move on to our next film? Um, well, I guess I would just like to say kind of like the whole thing about Stockholm Syndrome in the movie. It's like, I mean, technically by definition, it's obviously not. But like, because the Beast is the one who first falls for Belle. He's True. the one who first realizes that he's falling for Belle and he lets her go. So it's kind of like Stockholm Syndrome is when the captive falls for the captor. And this is sort of like a reverse situation. 
So I just thought I'd bring that up a little bit because it, it gets thrown around a lot, I think. That's a good point. Um, because Especially when you mentioned like letting her go. One of the things that I wrote down from the film and like the adult themes that we keep talking about is that loving someone is wanting to do things for them, including letting them go. Um, <laughs> which is when, when Beast does that and, you know, um, Belle wants to go help her father and um despite what that means for him it potentially means him remaining a beast forever he lets her go and do that because he loves her and so that's a really powerful moment in the movie definitely yeah and then she returns and that shows uh her his love her love for him and it's it's a lot more complex com- complex than i think boiling it down to stockholm syndrome yeah that's true christian just brought that up because he knew you'd bring it up <laughs> we talk about this all the time oh really is this a common topic of discussion when we watch it because we've seen it together like a few times yeah that's a really good point though is because the beast you know the character that he is he is the first one to fall for her, like toby mentioned and so that's a, an important point to consider yep yeah christian any further thoughts from you mm, i got none except for if you're wanting to watch beauty and the beast Please, by all means, with the French film included, because that's also a wonderful film, this is the one. Ignore that stupid-ass remake. <laughs> yes. And then, then the sequels, too. <laughs> Disney oh, Plus. Because you've seen those. <laughs> <laughs> they're not great, but they're, they're fine enough. Toby, where does this land for you all time? Ooh, oh, this is, this is my favorite movie of all time. I thought so. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah. Every time I watch it, I'm reminded why it's my favorite. It's just like, and then like I identify so much with Belle, I think, mm. because like I've always loved to read my whole life, and she's obviously so into books. So it's like, it's pretty cool. Yeah. I love that scene when they're singing Belle, and like her, the way they use colors in the movie, it's kind of like she's like lightened up amongst the village. Like she's right. the center point of attention because her colors are so bright and she's so lively. And so I never thought about that. That's true though. I like that. Yeah. Very cool. Okay. So that is obviously a very good best picture nominee that we would all definitely recommend beauty and the beast. Moving on to one that I, I don't know if we'll feel the exact same way about, <laughs> uh, but our second nominee for best picture. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) From director Barry Levinson, it is Bugsy. And so this is the story of Benjamin Bugsy Siegel. And he is like this gangster in the late 1940s. Um, And he becomes like very infatuated with Hollywood. That's where it kind of starts. He visits Hollywood sets. He has friends in Hollywood on top of being a hitman um, for the mafia, basically. And so on one hand, that leads to a relationship with an actress named Virginia Hill, um, who's played by Annette Bening. Bugsy is played by Warren Beatty. Wasn't sure if I mentioned that. (laughs) And so they kind of have this tumultuous romance that goes on from there, a lot of back and forth. They're constantly fighting and bickering, but are still kind of infatuated with one another. But what the film kind of... Um, descends into is the story of the creation of Las Vegas, which actually kind of centered around um, Siegel's 
beginning of the Flamingo Hotel in the Las Vegas desert. And so throughout the film, you see Las Vegas. It's not the Las Vegas we know. It is like literally nothing but sand. And he kind of starts at the Flamingo Hotel. If that does not sound historically accurate, it's because it's not that historically accurate. Um, he did have a role, but there was actually um, someone by the name of William Wilkerson who actually kind of began that process. But what we come to understand is that Bugsy Siegel is kind of the the he starts Las Vegas with this hotel and casino um, where gambling is legal, but he's constantly using mob money to do it, and that kind of gets him in trouble with the mob. If that sounds scattered, that's because that's the way the film is for me, at least. <laughs> I it, it's so scattered. I. The romance aspect of this, which, you know, Annette Bening and Warren Beatty got married soon after this. Um, Christian, did they, like, fall in love on the set of this movie? Yes, they did. Okay. Like, literally, I watched the opening to this Academy Awards, and they're walking down the red carpet together, and the announcer goes, there's newly married and uh, already expecting Warren Beatty and Annette Bening. Wow, they wasted no time. (laughs) I mean, they're they're still together, so I, I I guess it worked out. But watching the film, in my opinion, you would not believe that at all. I, I really don't see much chemistry with their romance, and to me, it's one of the weakest aspects of the movie. Right. Mm-hmm. There's, like, nothing that convinces me they should be together at all in this movie, um, especially because I forgot to mention Bugsy is married with two children <laughs> in this movie. Um, so it is an extramarital affair. But Christian, you're kind of shaking your head. What are your thoughts on this one? Out of all of these nominees, I can remember every single one of them. I have seen Bugsy twice now, and I remember nothing about it. It is. I mean, I'm only. I only can assume it got eight, nine, ten nominations. Ten nominations for being the standard biopic of the year. Standard because JFK is something totally different. We'll get to that but very mm-hmm. standard in the way it tells its story. From start to finish, we barely learn about this guy. We don't really know his background in terms of his livelihood, other than you said he has a married wife, he has kids, blah, blah, blah. He creates the flamingo. Other than that, I don't care about him. I don't care about the supporting people around him. I don't care about Annette Bening's character. This is just a movie for very old people who care that much. Yeah. It's also a love, it's also not a love story. It's it's Warren Beatty once again with Bonnie and Clyde, amazing. With Reds, very good. And with that one he did a few years ago of Howard Hughes, him getting a story he's wanted his whole life to make out on screen for some purpose or another. Yeah. So. Toby, what are your thoughts? Mm, pretty much the same thoughts. I thought... Like, I don't think it's, like, terrible. I just think it's too, like, it's very too long. It's, like, like you said, it's very scattered. So I feel like if it were, like, maybe even... Because there was one, one part in the movie when I, I was thinking, like, okay, this isn't terrible. But I'm like, oh, there's so much time left that it's, like... Yeah. Yeah. It, there's, there's not a lot cohesive, I think. And it, like Christian said, you don't really get a sense of who Bugsy is, really. Which is supposed to be the whole point, really. <laughs> So, I remember the first time because I watched it the first time with Toby last year, and after it ended, I couldn't tell you who Bugsy was. Yeah, like right. I get he's a gangster 
but I never got the sense he was. I thought that he was maybe a businessman because obviously he had the casino. But if you made a movie today about him, they're going to make it so much more better. Like they'll say, hey, he was a gangster with money. And this gangster, an emphasis on like the gangster started Vegas. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and I was just thinking like, even if you're one who like loves gangster movies and they are your thing, whether it's the, the Scorsese gangster movies, like, Irishman and Goodfellas, or it's uh, the you know the '30s gangster movies. This to me does not fit in that mold. You know, it's not that kind of gangster movie. There's, it's just pretty dull. It's you know, the classy version. Yes. Um, there were a couple things I did like. Um, one the the shots of the two of them behind the screen with the projector light coming through, so we kind of see their silhouettes. That's kind of cool. It's kind of basic for like a Hollywood 1940s movie, but I like the way they did it. It did win for art direction, so maybe that's why. Um, and I really, I, I liked that there wasn't a whole lot of hint, hint, week, week, Las Vegas stuff. You know, like giving a lot of clues like, oh, this is Vegas. Ha, ha, ha. Um, I, I didn't get a whole lot in that movie. And normally when you're thinking of a movie like this, where it's all about the beginning of Vegas, it's like trying to throw recognizable hints at you. It doesn't really do that, which I can kind of respect. Um, I also liked Harvey Keitel as Mickey Cohen. Um, not that I would like nominate him for an Oscar for it because he was nominated, but I thought he was good too. Yeah, I agree about the, um, projection thing. That was pretty cool. I like yeah. the ending of this film. Should I spoil what happens? I mean, it is a true story. Yes. yes. I mean, Go for it. I mean, it's Bugsy. So, so. I mean, he gets shot. And the way he gets shot is like he's literally standing in his home and somebody shoots him from the outside. I mean, people can say, hey, that's pretty standard. But I don't know. Something about that. It's like it happens in such a quick time. And it happens multiple times, of course, because, you know, double tap. But it's mm-hmm. pretty. Yeah, I agree. I agree with that. Um, like I said, this did win for art direction. It also won for costume design. Um, mm. I, pretty basic, you know. That's like an Irishman type win. There's a lot of, um, there's a lot of brown in this movie. <laughs> everything felt everything felt like either brown paint or what is it? The wood paneling. Yeah. Um, yeah, nominated for best picture, obviously. Barry Levinson for best director. Warren Beatty for best actor. Ben Kingsley and Harvey Keitel for Best Supporting Actor. Cinematography, original score, original screenplay were the rest of its nominations. And like you said, Christian, the first pairing of Beatty and Benning, who would go on to marry and are still together to this day. So I guess it worked out. She feeds him soup. (laughs) (laughs) I only say that because he's so much older. Well, <laughs> wow, okay, Toby, that was funny. I appreciated that. He's like, I'm gonna bring me the soup. <laughs> yeah. Um. Any other thoughts on Bugsy? I mean, it is forgettable in this lineup. Yeah, in this lineup, it's very forgettable. But I can only say again, it's like the standard biopic, so we better nominate it for best picture. Yeah. Yeah. It feels very typical. I mean, it did get 10 nominations. So it many. It was the leader. So many. So if 
if the Silence of the Lambs doesn't win, does Bugsy win? I don't I know. I think it does. I think it does, Do you honestly. Really? Do you yeah. think it's like number two? I think so. I think the next one is number two. Interesting. Okay, well, we'll get into that after we discuss JFK then. We'll save that discussion for after that. But I know, that's a good segue. Christian, would you like to go ahead and introduce our next Best Picture nominee? So this is what I think the second choice would have been, not Bugsy. It is JFK, Oliver Stone's conspiracy theory thriller. He, okay, I'll say this. He jerked this one out. <laughs> this is one that man wanted for his whole life. Anyway, here we go. So New Orleans District Attorney Jim Garrison, who is Kevin Costner, coming off of his win, by the way, for Dances with Wolves. Mm-hmm. He, in um, the late 60s, after Kennedy's death, President Kennedy's death in 1963, filed suit against Clay Shaw, played by Tommy Lee Jones here, for his alleged participation and conspiracy to assassinate Kennedy alongside uh, Lee Harvey Oswald. So basically, what the Warren Commission did in the 60s was saying Lee Harvey Oswald was the sole conspirator of this. This movie talks about how there is more than one person involved in this whole assassination attempt. There is more than one gunshot. Something happened. What happened? We don't know. By the end of this movie, Oliver Stone pretty much wants you, and he, I mean, he really made me question everything. He wants you to think for yourself what could have happened that day in November to President Kennedy. It was an assassination. But how deep was this assassination? Dun, dun, dun. And honestly, this was the second time I've seen it. The first time that I really got into it, though. And when I really got into it. I think I texted both of you how much I was getting into this. Mm-hmm. Like with each scene, I was questioning things. I started getting onto Wikipedia, the best website there is, and looking up assassination theories, what happened that day in terms of reading about it. And I think to myself through this, you know what? Oliver Stone might be right, because his big takeaway is the government had everything to do with this. And you know what, Oliver? I hope you're listening. You're probably not, because you're friends with Putin. Hey, but Putin might be listening. <laughs> That's a jab at But you have a good movie here. Putin's one of our 30 listeners every month, so. Uh, yeah, very nice description. I, I like how you say, you know, you're questioning things. Toby, did you feel a similar way while watching this? Yes, definitely. It's like, it's like kind of a long, longer movie, um, but it doesn't really feel like it because it, it it's so well, it just goes along so fast, um, and the, it's so interesting that you can't help but like questioning yourself too, because the, the it just makes so much sense. Like the conspiracies make so much sense. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm one like I'm not, I don't, I'm not gonna say I'm terribly knowledgeable or like an expert on jfk conspiracies but i've always found them really interesting right especially because like they've recently i don't know polls you can never trust how accurate they are but recent polls have shown that the overwhelming majority of americans do not feel that lee harvey oswald was the sole conspirator um or even the sole murderer of jfk um or at least that story we've been told is not entirely accurate and so I don't know. I really think I wonder how people feel about this film, because I think sometimes people take films as if they're supposed to represent fact. And I I don't take it that way. I take this as telling a story about right. a 
possible explanation for the JFK assassination from the point of view of Kevin Costner's character. Um, and I will also say it's from the point of view of Oliver Stone himself, too. True. This Very is, true. Like, like I said, this is his thoughts on screen. Yeah, and I think that's something you got to consider when you watch a movie. Like, even if you don't believe it or you don't think it's the correct interpretation, think about how he's presenting it. You know, how convincing is he? Is he convincing? 100%. Um, not that I believe everything here. And there's a lot to unpack. Like Toby said, it is over three hours long. But the editing is like, Christian, I think you've said some of the best you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Especially I, in the opening scene, too. Yes. With Martin Sheen's narration. And I remember in film class, we actually had to dissect that scene. And it was just pretty much how many edits are in this. And it's over 100. Wow. It's it's pretty much news footage for that whole opening scene explaining what happens on November 22nd, 23rd, 63. So, right. Yeah, I love that opening because it felt like something you would watch in like in a history class. Mm -hmm. Um, going over the assassination, Joe Hutching and Pietro Scalia, um, or Scalia, they won best film editing for this. So it was properly rewarded. And I agree, some of the best I've ever seen as well. Also some of the best supporting characters. I mean, there's a lot of people in this movie. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read off some. So with Kevin Costner, Tommy Lee Jones, Kevin Bacon, Laurie Metcalf, Gary Oldman as Lee Harvey Oswald, Michael Rooker uh, from Guardians of the Galaxy, Sissy Spacek, Joe Pesci's in this, Walter Matthau, Jack Lemmon. I mean, legends only, y'all. Yeah, and two very important characters you're forgetting are uh, Tommy Lee Jones's hair and Joe Pesci's hair. We can't forget about them. Oh, God. Wigs. Wigs. (laughs) You got to look up stills of them in this movie if you haven't seen it. It's great. Um, yeah, and how about that appearance by Donald Sutherland? Okay, Donald Sutherland in this movie, amazing. Amazing, I agree. 15-minute monologue that had me guessing the whole time, like, wait, so you're telling me, Donald Sutherland, that the government did this? And I'm literally talking to the screen. Donald, you're making me believe this right now. You're convincing <laughs> at this. It's such a great performance, and he's in there for 16 minutes, and he's done. Yeah. Like, that is the role that should have been recognized this year. Tommy Lee Jones is good, but Donald Sutherland is next level good. Yeah. You're right. For, for like, what he's given in that short amount of time, I love that scene. It may have been my favorite scene from this year, or one of them at least. But, yeah, very memorable. Yeah, like, I wrote down the cast is phenomenal. The courtroom scene going from... You know, the film is in color and those scenes to black and white to archival footage to the Zapruder film. Um, I kept watching the Zapruder. The Zapruder? Yes. That Okay. I kept watching that actually through this because it is on YouTube to watch. Yes. It's pretty interesting. Like, I mean, obviously people see it now through documentaries and whatnot, but you just sit there and watch it and kind of examine it. And while you're watching this movie, because you hear gas, because people had not seen this before. Mm-hmm. Like, I can only imagine seeing it for the first time. And you're just only hearing news about Kennedy dying. You don't see the footage. Yeah. And it's really shocking, too. I remember, so I was in Dallas this past summer, and we didn't make it to the actual 
Texas School Book Depository where um, Lee Harvey Oswald was. But we saw like the where it was, and we saw the uh, freeway, and they have like a couple X's to show like where the bullets actually struck him. And we saw the grassy knoll, and after that, like my dad, like me, was like so interested. He went online, he found the Zapruder film, and I'm like watching him watch it, and he's just like, "Oh, oh," because it's like really shocking. Like it is. It, for, it, like, it's for a handheld home video. Yeah. For anybody who, like, I assume, I don't know, if you don't know what this is, you're going to look at it, I don't want to assume that anybody doesn't know, but if you don't know, the Zapruder film was taken at the assassination by a guy named, last name Zapruder, who was there, and it's just a home video that's, like, the best evidence or footage we have of JFK being shot, and so. It's pretty much the footage of it, too. Like, yeah. any footage that you see of it, it's most likely that. Right. Ugh, there's so much layers to this, though, because you can get into such a deep conversation about this and all the conspiracy theories about it. Right, and this is just, like, one, you know, view of it. Yeah. Which is interesting, too. Yeah. And what's crazy is, like, this one view is taken at so many different levels. Like, it's just one conspiracy theory out of many. Mm-hmm. But it's hard to keep everything in mind because they explore so much throughout the movie. There's so many characters, uh, Tommy Lee Jones's character being involved, Joe Pesci's character being involved, basically this group of people who conspired to kill the president. Um, Jack Ruby, you know, being involved and whatnot too. And Joe Pesci's character, David Ferry is also in the Irishman. Yep. Very, very good connection. Um, I would just like to say that, uh, Oliver Stone showed this film to Congress, and Congress was like, oh, shit, we did it. No. <laughs> so they actually, after watching this, it led to the 1992 Assassinations Disclosure Act, meaning that in 2017, I think it was, um, the government released some records of uh, more evidence about what happened. They're supposed to be releasing more, I think, next year. Because they only release like surface level stuff, but I mean it just it keeps going. There's so many documents about this. Yeah. Well, it was like a couple of years ago, like 2017. They were supposed supposed to release like a bunch of the files. Yeah. And then Trump was only like, no, no, we're just gonna release these these few. And it's like, oh, come on, man. Um. But yeah, so this did win. Like I said, film editing. Robert Richardson also won best cinematography. Um, he's well known for doing a lot of Tarantino's movies. He's also nominated for Best Picture, Tommy Lee Jones for Best Supporting Actor, Oliver Stone for Best Director, um, Best uh, Adapted Screenplay, Best Sound, and Best Original Score from John Williams, which I also really liked as well. Um, really noticeable, like almost too much, but I enjoyed Williams' score here as well. And Roger Ebert's number one of 1991. Huh. that's not what i would expect honestly but that's cool <laughs> all right so christian you think this was runner-up in 1991 i do jfk yeah i, I, I think i think it's because of the popularity of it and the whole idea that it, the movies that seem to have the most talked about slash most controversial ones mm. seem to be the front runners of things 
you know? Because even yeah. I know that I read Walter Cronkite denounced this, since Walter Cronkite is the most famous of the journalists who reported on the assassination, obviously. And he said this was total lies and slander. And... Yeah. Toby, what do you think? Uh, that it, it was, if it was the runner-up? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think it would, it would uh, of these slate of nominees, probably pretty close to being runner-up. Yeah. I'm not really sure what would be, though. Yeah, I could see it going either way. I could see that controversial factor working its favor. I could also see people being like, you know, they were obviously, most voters were alive when this happened. Right. So I don't know how much they bought into that or not. Um, But yeah, I think it's either that or Bugsy. I think it's definitely between those two, but we'll never know. Any final thoughts on JFK? It is incredible. Yes. And if you want to watch the non-director's cut version, a.k.a. the theatrical version, you can only stream it because there has never been a theatrical version of this put onto home media release. I don't know why. That's interesting. So you go from a three-hour movie to a -a three-and-a-half-hour movie. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah, don't watch JFK expecting a biopic of the president. Um, (laughs) That is not the movie you're getting. No. No, but don't also be intimidated by three hours because it's... It doesn't feel three hours. Very true. Yeah. It goes by so fast. All right. Christian, would you like to introduce our next nominee? Indeed. This is people, people who need people. It's Barbara Streisand directing The Prince of Tides. Thank you. You can, okay, guess you're holding your applause. Yes, The Prince of Tides, directed by the one, the only, Barbara Streisand. It tells the story of Tom Wingo, who is from South Carolina, and he travels to New York City to visit his sister, Lila, who has attempted suicide. He meets with her psychiatrist, Susan Lowenstein, played by Barbara Streisand. Tom Wingo is Nick Nolte, by the way. Um, And so Barbara Streisand, as the psychiatrist to his sister, and somewhat now to him, because they do have that, you know, psychiatrist patient conversation relationship turns into a little bit more she sort of digs down deep into why his sister might have tried to kill herself multiple times and sort of what his past is because he has a very different story to what many people would think this is it's very shocking it's very emotional his family is they hide a secret Let's just say that. They hide a secret. Mm. I want people to see this film. It's going to be on Criterion soon. So I don't want to give out the spoiler alerts to what his family's history is all about. But yes, it is a great film. Barbara Streisand directs. She acts in it. Um, I think she really gets to the heart of the story, which is the whole family dynamic. They're dysfunctional. They have their secrets. But especially Tom, he wants the best for his sister. He doesn't want her to harbor any guilt or anything that happened again won't spoil it but yeah good movie zero wins no nomination for barbara streisand director discuss yeah toby what do you think i i really like this one too like um the barbara getting snubbed for director is sort of like one of the biggest things i think of this year um because not only she directs it really well she is also really great in it like and her and McNulty are like the way they are paired 
and the way that they act off each other is just like some of the best like paired acting I think I don't know it's just really powerful to me so yeah yeah I agree I was I was really just kind of I don't want to say surprised because I think Nick Nolte's a really good actor but he was so damn good in this movie and I Toby you've seen this before right Yes, I've seen it twice. And then this is your first time, of course, right, Brett? Yes, this is my first time. Okay, so go ahead. But yes, Nick Nolte's amazing, so. Yeah, he's great. And really to think of his character as like, you know, it's almost like a discussion of masculinity. Like this is, I I agree, we can't spoil why things are the way they are in their family history here. It's because that moment when it comes is one of the most disturbing and surprising moments I've ever seen in a movie. Um. But to see that kind of get peeled back and him kind of shed some of his layers and open up to Barbara Streisand's character is really awesome. I mean, the scenes between those two where they're kind of doing those therapy sessions that are intended for his sister but really become about him as well, I think those are definitely the best scenes of the movie for me personally. I guess my – so – one thing I will kind of touch on because I think it's pretty clear from the poster is that they do develop this relationship and become romantic and intimate with one another. Those scenes that they have a great chemistry. I love the romance, but like they're kind of their most romantic bits are, I don't know. They seem very expected. Um, yeah. Whereas and the rest of the film did not. Right. Cause like you have those things and like when they're together and they're in talking about things and there's like, the way they interact doesn't really lead to that sort of any, if it wasn't there, it would still have the same impact. The yeah. Romance. But, um, that romance sort of feels, I don't know. It sort of feels forced. I know this is based on a book. I haven't read the book at all, but I don't know. Again, uh, Nick, so Nick Nolte's character is also married in this. I just yes. want to say, yes. so there's that. <laughs> yeah. To Blith Danner. Which it's revealed that she is having an extramarital affair as well. So, you know, take that as you will. Um, what happens when stays in New York? Yeah. But I sort of feel like just Barbara getting shafted just happens to be a theme this year. Not just for Best Director, but her character at the end of the movie as well. Like oh. it <laughs> <laughs> it kind of left me feeling kind of weird. Like, oh, so she's going to get left like that after all that stuff that happened it's kind of an interesting way to close that out but i did really i i enjoyed the movie i agree streisand's direction you know this was her second directed film after yentl um which she got a golden globe nomination for she got a golden globe a golden globe for that one yeah so I mean, even Billy Crystal pointed it out during his opening song montage that this film directed itself. Yeah. She didn't get a nomination. And I recently watched a concert with her. And when she brought up The Prince of Tides, because she brought up all her filmography, somebody screamed out, you should have got an Oscar for that. Like, I wouldn't say an Oscar, but a nomination? Most likely. Yeah, yeah and I think so. if this is one of those simple films, this isn't JFK where it's like a big grand epic movie, but it's one that she gets to the real soul of this, and that is the relationship between this man, his sister, and his guilt about everything that's happened in the life in his life. 
and the yeah. fantasy secret. Like she gets at it so much so that I mean, I put down in our little fact sheet that she consulted with therapists and doctors to create a sense of authenticity. Because like I would want her as my psychiatrist. Yeah. She's very warming. She's very calm. She lets him call her Lowenstein all the time. I love <laughs> He's Lowenstein. Lowenstein. <laughs> yeah, and how about the relationship between uh, Nick Nolte's character and the rest of her family? There's like a really... We talked about this film, and it is like very, very sad. It's a really sad movie, but there's a really funny sequence between uh, Lowenstein's husband and Nick Nolte's character. Because uh, he's like this famous concert violinist, and he like totally mistreats Barbara in, f- in front front of a bunch of people. And <laughs> Nick Nolte basically threatens this million dollar violin to get him to apologize. I love that scene as well. It's a nice bit of comedy thrown in there. I also like that she uses her own son too in this. True. Um, so yeah, like you said, seven nominations. Um, do you want to read those off? Yeah, um, so it, oh, I was looking at the, I was like, damn, it won this many. No, zero (laughs) wins. Zero wins. Seven nominations. Picture, actor for Nick Nolte, supporting actress for Kate uh, Nelligan, who plays Nolte's mother in this, in past and present, right? Yes. Yeah, they do makeup on her for her older version. Adapted screenplay, art direction, cinematography, and original score. So... Yeah. I got that eighth one. Hell, should have got the ninth one because Barbara does do good in this and acting anyway. Right. Yeah, she does. Yes. And like I said, this will be on Criterion this month, I believe. That's right. Very nice. I won it. I don't know. So, this, yeah. Also, I just want to say that this sort of seems like another interesting Best Picture nominee coming out from this year. I don't know. I don't know. I mean, in the if this were a ten thing, yes, it would. But I wonder what impact this made on like the audience reception of it, and you know, critics' reception of it. That it was like, you know what, best picture nominee. Maybe maybe it was the Barber Factor. Yeah, I think it definitely could have been the Barber Factor. I think it could have been just the the interpersonal relationships and the acting, and also I I think just that that moment where we figure out why things are the way they are is probably something that stuck with people and that they remembered when they were filling out their ballots and how that probably impacted them. Mm-hmm. So at least it would me anyway, but yeah. All right. So any further thoughts on Barbara Streisand's the Prince of Tides? I'm so happy you called it Barbara Streisand's. <laughs> <laughs> oh. um, yes. I will say, and I have a picture saved here and I'll show you two's. But she delivers a very great line reading here, and I'm going to quote it. They're at a dinner party. I can't believe you've come here. We all know you're fucking my husband. <laughs> <laughs> and honestly, when I saw this for the first time like a while back, it blew me away, that line. Yeah, same. All right. It is time for our best picture winner. And the Oscar goes to The Silence of the Lambs. I feel like uh, that's the only way to say it. You can only say it in a haunting way. And here we have a Catherine Hepburn impersonation with laryngitis. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yes. 
The Silence of the Lambs from director Jonathan Demme. So this is the story of Clary Starling, who is a, a young FBI cadet. Um, she's actually in the middle of training when the film begins. And she is recruiting with the um, behavioral, uh, what is it called? Like the behavioral sciences unit of the FBI mm-hmm. um, to pursue Buffalo Bill, who is a killer who um, skins his victims alive. And she actually doesn't know that at first. She's first tasked with going to um, talk to a an imprisoned serial killer and cannibal named Hannibal Lecter. If you don't know who he is, where have you been? Um, Hannibal Lecter, played by Anthony Hopkins, and Starling, played by Jodie Foster. And so a lot of the film is based on the interactions between the two. And so she'll go and have these conversations with him in an attempt for, and he basically helps her get inside the mind of Buffalo Kill, Buffalo Bill as a serial killer in an attempt to find Buffalo Bill um, and bring him to justice. And so it's a lot about um, Clarice and that journey, but also being a woman in the FBI and constantly being surrounded by men who are like always hitting on her or um, dismissing her authority and her skills um, in a really, a truly dangerous case here. Um, Buffalo Bill is no one to mess with, um, as we've seen from his victims and so on and so forth, as well as Hannibal Lecter when things kind of get into his hands and he gets to take the reins on some things. I don't want to reveal too much of what happens for folks who haven't seen it, but it's really, really good. Um, I think it's a great movie. Very few issues with it. Like, it's nearly perfect for me. And it honestly took me two tries to kind of get that. The first time I saw it, it was like a four and a half star movie. And then when I watched it this time, I focused a lot more on like Jonathan Demme's close-ups and what he does as a director and with the camera. Really, really, really great stuff. And so, Toby, I want to hear your thoughts first because I know this is also pretty high on your all-time list. Yeah, it's like it's like five, top five kind of deal. Um, but I actually, um, so it's not only my one of my favorite movies; it's one of my dad's favorite movies. You know. Um, every time it would come on tv beyond in the house kind of thing and i've also like i've read the book for a long time as well um i've read it quite a few times and it's uh i think it's just as good as the movie really and like you said right it's it's a, it's one of those perfect movies where you can't really find a whole lot of flaws with it personally there's just so much to like yeah christian what say you um agreed that it is one of those near perfect movies i still give it five stars has top 10 favorite female performances of all time in terms of winners and number one for me my favorite acting win for an actor for anthony hopkins yeah like Mm -hmm. the chemistry between these two is so on the ball we were just talking about the romance that the prince of tides has and even beauty and the beast like this is I will say this is almost a romantic picture because of how close these two get to one another, even though they're separated by a jail cell and bars and walls. There's some romance here, and it's just that chemistry that they have with one another. And, I mean, near I say, this is almost a sexy movie. Right, that is kind of weird how it's their relationship is so 
it has that sort of chemistry feel of like romance in a way and it um but it's not quite the typical movie that you would think would have something like that yeah like hannibal seduces clarice enough to both get information out of her from her childhood and her past that whole like where the lamb still screaming situation enough for her to get out of him the information she needs to get to buffalo bill he's just like they're interested in each other but equally and i don't think he really when she first got there he really wasn't probably expecting that to happen and it's interesting those interactions how they work yeah uh, I think I forgot to mention when I was describing the plot that uh, Hannibal Lecter is a doctor, like a former psychiatrist. Yeah. And so he 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 knows how to get into people's heads, and um, that so kind of fuels yeah. their interaction. Yeah, he probably knows how to keep people out of his head. Typically. That too. But it's like this woman comes in, and is so different. Yeah, I love, like I said, Jonathan Demme's close-ups. Yeah. I. Um, yeah we we've talked about bad close-ups before like les miserables bad <laughs> close-ups <laughs> silence of the lambs perfect close-ups like knowing when to use them i freaking love the shot of like clarice when she goes to see him and is like new him new and improved prison locale behind the glass and the camera's on her but we see his reflection in the gra- in the glass and it's so menacing that's incredible. That's an incredible shot. Definitely. Um, but yeah, that, that whole close-up scene where she's visiting him when he gets transferred, like that won them both their Oscars. That scene right there. Exactly. The whole again, it's I, it's the lamb screaming scene is what I like to call it because that's what it is. But she gets so close to that camera that you see her vulnerability, and you're like asking yourself, why are you opening up to this man? Yeah. Like, what is so important that you need to do this? You're telling such a personal story to this murderer. Like, surely there has to be something else you can do to get the info you need. Yeah. But instead, Jonathan Demi is like, we're going to keep you on screen and you're going to tell it to us. Um, so Anthony Hopkins, Christian, you mentioned your favorite best actor win ever. Yeah. Um, definitely one of mine, too. I mean, it's at least top 10, probably top five. I can't remember. But... Also, one of the shortest. You have listed here 24 minutes and 52 seconds. Um, second shortest win for Best Actor. So I, I have to ask the question, and I don't want to discount his win in any way because it's very much deserved. But is there a little category fraud here? Is he a supporting actor, or would you say he's where he needs to be in lead? I would say he's where he needs to be because I don't think it, it's definitely not about screen time. It's more about what they do because he... he like even if like you say oh it's only 24 minutes how is it only 24 minutes because his impact after you're done watching is like that was only 24 minutes it yeah. feel, feels like a lot more than that for sure but same i mean everything from the point where him and her start talking when he's transferred to his okay if you haven't seen the movie whatever spoiler to his escape that is like the majority bulk of his scenes but i mean he is definitely the secondary character, right? But he's mm-hmm. also the lead of this, too. Because without Clarice getting Hannibal, she would not have the information she needs to move on. Yeah. And, like, every time he's on screen, he steals the scene. Yes. 
his line delivery is like just his line de- delivery alone is some of the best ever. Uh, I was going to say like back to romance and there's, and then we can get to the line delivery, but there's a throwaway line that he does that he says, people will say we're in love. Like that's a quote from a musical, but still like thinking about it now, it's like, you know what? Cause people are already assuming she's getting really close to this guy. Yeah. She only to see him the one time. Why does she keep constantly going back to him? Right. Yeah. Um, I, I agree with both of you, actually. When I first watched this, I might have said, ah, he should have been supporting. But yeah, it, Toby put it, I think you put it perfectly. It's his impact and it's his presence. You know, even when he's not on screen, he's felt, you know, he's there. Um, we talked about editing in JFK. I think the editing here is not quite as good, but gives it a run for its money. Largely because of a scene near the end where we see Clarice kind of going towards one house where Buffalo Bill is. Yeah. And the editing with another house where he may or where the Buffalo Bill may or may not be. Right. Outstanding even, editing. Yeah. Or even the scene where um with the elevator and the uh and the ambulance, it's like you're questioning there too. It's sort of like the same kind of feeling. Yeah. It's that whole lead up, lead up, lead up, lead up punch. Yep. <laughs> yes. Uh, typically considered the only horror film to win Best Picture. Christian, you kind of so-so on that. It's more of a thriller. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not scared. I was never scared of it. I watched it as a kid. I shouldn't have, but I did. <laughs> I, I think it's more unsettling Yeah. Than scary. Yeah, but it's definitely the closest they've ever gotten. Yeah, yeah for it's, sure. It's a psychological thriller, but like Toby said, it's very close to being horror. Yeah. Um, have you? I assume you've probably both seen the original theatrical trailer for this movie. I have not. I have not. Really? Yeah. Oh, awesome! So I watched it before we recorded. You gotta check it out. It's like honestly one of the most effective trailers I think I've ever seen. It begins with like Orion pictures and then it just like cuts to Hannibal and then goes back and then cuts back. And it's like, oh, if you watch the trailer, you might think it was a horror movie. So I don't know if that impacts a little bit at the time, but yeah, check I it mean, out. And it's kind of interesting that you bring up the trailer that it was released so early in a year and they probably weren't even considering. So the trailer was probably not even considering you know, any kind of Oscar chances. It was probably just trying to be a horror movie, get some people in the seats, whatever. Yeah, released on Valentine's Day, 1991. And I don't know, I don't know if you know, Christian, um, what day the Oscars were. I'm kind of looking it up here. I think it was March, like March 30th, 1992, something like that. Yeah, exactly. March 30th, 1992. So That's over a year at later. Like, yep. ain't that something? That just does not happen anymore. Um, so we got five wins, of course. Once again, the big five. Best picture, best director for Jonathan Demme, actress for Jodie Foster, actor for Anthony Hopkins, and adapted screenplay. Um, two additional knobs for film editing and for sound. Really, really interesting. And Toby, it kind of goes into you mentioning that they may not have considered this award contender at first. The only award it won at the Golden Globes was Best Actress for Jodie Foster. So 
not even for Anthony Hopkins, not for best film. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that is interesting though, because when the Globes were like, Jan- I'm looking at it, January, early January, so it was like, where their, uh, I wonder where they started, sort of, uh, started realizing it could have been a kind of serious contender. Yeah, I kind of wanted the same thing. Plus, a movie that came out so late. You know what? Home video. Home video impact. True. Very true. Good point. Good old VHS. Well, we've talked about everything we love about the film, and I guess the only thing that has not aged well with the film is the character Buffalo Bill. Mm. Um, right. Because, um, you know, Buffalo Bill is kind of presented as this trans character. Um you know, Buffalo Bill wants to build a a skin suit out of women that they kill. Um, and we talked about the beginning LGBTQ plus protests at the Oscars because of that representation. And when you think about trans representation, not just where it was at then, but even where it's at now, this is one of the few times we've seen anything close to that. Not a good look. Um, Especially being a villain, and it's just... And the way he is in the movie, it's sort of very negative, obviously. His scenes are like, you're like, he's, you're thinking he's like deranged, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like when I first saw this, I obviously was very shocked at it. And I, the scene of Buffalo Bill dancing. Yeah. <laughs> closed my eyes because I didn't know what I was going to see. <laughs> but I mean, of course it's, queer coded character but to the point of again yes buffalo bill is the villain of this movie and it don't look good for queer people that is not the representation queer people deserve on screen at all especially because he's a murderer right i think the book even goes farther into his character or their character and um in the movie is sort of like it you remember buffalo bill more but he's not they're not actually in the movie that much really if you uh it's only a few scenes yeah that's true and especially too that there's the issue also of violence against the women which this movie has Mm -hmm. yeah buffalo bill's victim is only women yeah but then like but with that it's like clarice ends up obviously killing buffalo bill so spoilers All right. We, we've oh, everybody. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're good. Uh, we, she definitely, she beats him. So it's like it's. I don't see that as much with the female empowerment or whatever you were saying. Yeah. But, but I mean, that is also like, like I said, that is my one issue with the movie. You know, mm-hmm, definitely is I Buffalo think, Bill as a character. See, and I've never had that issue until time has progressed thinking on things has progressed and reevaluating the movie i still love this movie to death but yes that is very problematic yeah sure but again we're thinking of the 90s when this is such a oh, 90s and 80s when the book came out such like a thing though to do mm-hmm. but i mean hopefully we progressed <laughs> pretty <laughs> well, sure I mean- made today buffalo bill would be a totally different thing like, the, the figure of Buffalo Bill pretty much would be a serial killer. The whole issue of, you know, what that was would okay. be gone. I, yeah. Even Siri agrees with me. 
<laughs> yeah, and if it did appear, the backlash would be much more severe, I, I would hope. Um, but yeah, then again, we were just talking about Barbara Streisand, like not being nominated for Best Director, and like the parallels between that and Greta Gerwig this year mm-hmm. are so similar. Like it directed oh, yeah. itself. We heard that again this year, and so. But yeah, um, some other facts produced by Orion Pictures, which would soon file for bankruptcy. Um, so when character Christian, you put this, when characters are talking to Starling, they often talk directly to the camera. When she is talking to them, she was always looking slightly off camera. Demi has explained that this was done so that the audience would directly experience her point of view, but not theirs, hence encouraging the audience to more readily identify with her, which we kind of talked about um, with the way he uses close-ups and whatnot. The great heroines of screen. Yeah, and the, uh, there's that one shot of um, her when she steps into the elevator and she's surrounded by men, and you're sort of at her eye level. Yes. Like what she feels like, surrounded by men. She's such a tiny lady. <laughs> and to think too that she's only in training for all of this, but she goes the extra mile. Yeah. Like. It lit- even that point where her the guy in charge is like, you can just call it off. You're done. We got the we got this. She's like, um, I'm, I I gotta go. Still, we're doing this. Yeah. So I think the film like literally ends with her graduation from like training or whatever it is. Wild. Uh, but yeah, FBI gave full cooperation, thinking it would be a good re- recruiting tool for female agents. Maybe. Um, Gene Hackman originally owned the rights. Michelle Pfeiffer was in consideration for Clary Starling, which would have been interesting. Michelle Pfeiffer's a great actress. Um, yeah, it's just this is just like Jodie Foster's role, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and then so some AFI lists: 100 Years, 100 Movies in 2007. It ranked number 74. It was number five on their 100 Thrills list. Their heroes and villains, Clarice Starling was number six hero, and Hannibal Lecter, number one villain. I want to discuss this. Best villain ever in a movie? Mm, probably not. No, I mean, like, and then he is he a villain? In, I mean, he's a villain in the movie, but he's not, like, the he's main not, villain. He's not the main True. villain, yeah. True. I don't, know if, I don't know if he even is a villain in this. Yeah, I don't think he's, like... He's not directly portrayed that way. I mean, I definitely think he's he's not, you know, he's definitely not a good guy. He's not a protagonist, but I think people like well, people like villains who they can like, who they don't hate, but they can identify with a little bit and like. True. Animal is definitely one of those characters where you like him because he's so interesting, but he's also like a very bad person. Yeah. Very true. Um, and then it was on AFI's 100 Years, 100 Movie Quotes, number 21, a census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> I can't do it. <laughs> <clears throat> Christian. A census taker once tried to test me. I ate his liver with some fava beans and a nice Chianti. <laughs> been watching since i was a child (laughs) all right well we got a nice discussion of the silence of the lambs anything else to add before we rank 
these nominees? I don't think so. The book is very good. Toby yes. made me read the book. The book is very good. I've read it multiple times. And the other books are great, too. Not as good as the other movies, but... Yep, it's all oh, good. I will say yes. watching... Um, Jodie Foster was very, very happy she won. But Anthony Hopkins received the standing O of the night for his win. Yeah. Like, you know, big deal there. Yeah, that was cool. And was this... So he was just nominated for the two popes. That was his first nomination since this, right? No, because he was nominated for Amistad. Ah, uh, okay. In 97, 98. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So it's been a while, though. Yeah, it has been a while. But he's been around, too, because we literally talked about him being in The Lion in Winter on our very first podcast episode. Yeah, true. Look, look how far we've come, and look how far <laughs> he's come with us. <laughs> very nice. All right. Let's go ahead. We have gone over the five nominees. Let's rank these five and see what we got. So, Toby, I'm going to go to you first from five up to one. What do you got? We have Bugsy, The Prince of Tides, JFK, The Silence of the Lambs, and I have to go with Beauty and the Beast for the number one. All right. Christian, how about you? All right. Well, I have also Bugsy. Poor Bugsy. Who cares? Uh, the Prince of Tides at number four. JFK. Beauty and the Beast at number two. And The Silence of the Lambs. The winner for me and the Oscars at number one. All right. My number five, Bugsy. You know, one stinker. That's not bad. Number four, The Prince of Tides. Number three, JFK. Number two, Beauty and the Beast, and number one, Silence of the Lambs. So, Christian, I think we had the exact same. In fact, we all had the exact same, almost. Um, Toby putting Beauty and the Beast number one for very good reason, because I think, to me, those are the two like five-star movies, the two best for sure, and you can go either way, and it would be a great win. So Right, that's how I feel, for sure. Like, Obviously, I think that The Silence of the Lambs is a very well-deserved Best Picture winner, to either one or two Beauty and the Beast, Silent Slam, interchangeable. Very nice. Yeah, I agree. Okay. So we've covered the nominees for the 1991 Oscars, the 64th Academy Awards. But we are not done yet. This is, though this is the end of this episode, we will be back because we have six more films to discuss that we've picked from this year. Uh, that we thought were worthy of consideration, but were not nominated for Best Picture. And so I just want to say thanks for listening. Um, as always, if you could rate, review, subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Um, check us out, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, Letterboxd. Um, follow us on all those, www.gildedfilms.com. And of course, um, and our theme music, as always, composed by Joshua Arnoldi. And Toby, thanks so much for joining us again. Um, we loved doing the Christmas episode, and it's nice to have you back so soon for this year. Oh, yeah, no problem. Lovely movies. Perfect. Christian, any final thoughts? See you, everybody. Tale as old as time, true as it can be. Oh.